Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to discuss fluids and different types of transfusions that we can give in the operating room. And we want to go through the different body compartments that fluid can be in and discuss if we give a hypotonic solution versus a hypertonic solution, how that will affect our plasma volume, how long it will increase that volume, how it will affect the intracranial pressure. And then when we get to transfusions, we want to talk about the different types of reactions that we can see, different types of effects you can see when we give lots of units in the transfusion, and basically just how we're going to approach these situations in the operating room when determining what type of fluid we should use for which type of patient. Yeah, so the first thing we need to understand when we're talking about fluids is the fluid makeup of our body. 60% of the human body is made up of water. So in a normal adult, you have 60% of your body weight's water. Of that, you have basically two-thirds that is intracellular fluid, and then you have one-third that is extracellular fluid. So if you're looking at the total body weight, that means 40% of your total body weight is intracellular, and then 20% is extracellular. Extracellular is going to be broken down further into plasma and interstitial fluid. 15% is going to be the interstitial fluid, and 5% is going to be the plasma When I say 15 and 5%, that's of your total body weight. Sometimes these numbers can get a little confusing. If you're reading the textbook, you'll read, well, you know, two thirds of the water is your intracellular. And then it's hard to kind of translate that to total body weight. So when we're talking percentages here, I'm talking about percent of your total body weight. So when I say 15% of your total body weight, that's your interstitial. And then 5% is your plasma. Keep in mind that 20% makes up the extracellular. You have 40%, which is your intracellular, which makes up your total 60% of your total body weight. All right, let's just do an example here for a patient. If you have a 70 kilogram patient, 60% is water. So that would be 42 liters of total body water. Then you know that two thirds of that is going to be your intracellular. So you'd have 28 liters. Extracellular is going to be 14 liters. Of that extracellular, you know that's broken down where we talked about 15% of your total body weight is interstitial and then 5% is plasma. So you would have three liters would be plasma and then 11 liters would be your interstitial fluid. And again, that's broken down from your 14 liters. That's your extracellular fluid. Right. And just to clarify on this, when we say a certain percentage of the total body weight, we're assuming that there's one liter of fluid per one kilogram. And and so basically, if we say 60% of the body weight, if there's 70 kilograms, we can say, well, 100% would be 100 liters of water. So 60% is going to be 42 liters. So it's just a one-to-one flip there to go from kilograms to liter. Another thing I thought was interesting is when I read this, a normal adult male is going to be around 70 kilograms. So that's why we use this for our example. But it came down to be three liters of plasma. And I was always told your blood volume is around five liters for an average adult. Well, looking into it further, basically you have three liters of plasma, but the other two liters comes from the intracellular fluid in all the blood cells. So your red blood cells, your white blood cells, et cetera, are full of volume. And that's where you get the other two liters that then added the three liters of just extracellular plasma to get that five liters of blood. 
Next, we want to talk about fluid shifting. Basically, the idea here is how the fluid is going to shift between the vascular space and then the interstitial space or the intracellular space. So basically, remember that water is going to be affected by two big things. There's a lot more, but two big things that we want to talk about. The first is oncotic pressure. Oncotic pressure is made from the proteins in the plasma, and it almost acts as like a magnet, and it attracts the water and the fluid to stay next to the protein. Biggest one that we all think of is albumin. Albumin is very prevalent in the plasma, and that's really where we get our main oncotic pressure to keep that fluid in the vascular space. The second thing is going to be solutes. So water often follows solutes. And what I mean by that, let's say we have two compartments next to each other with an impermeable membrane in between them. What I mean by that is water can flow through, but solutes can't flow through from one to the other. And I put a lot of solute. So I just dump a lot of sodium, potassium, chloride, all these solutes into the left side, the right compartment. I hardly put anything in there. Well, we base everything on tonicity, which is the idea that the more solutes you have will have a higher tonicity. So the left compartment then, if I threw all of those solutes in there, it's going to be hypertonic compared to the other side that has very few solutes. And what water is going to do is it's going to shift back and forth between this semi-permeable membrane to allow an equal concentration between both compartments. So if you think about it, if there's more solutes in the first chamber, the second chamber is going to send water through over to that first chamber to dilute the amount of solutes in that first chamber to then equal the concentration on both sides. And that's what we're going to see between our vascular space, our interstitial space, our intracellular space. They're all going to try to balance each other. And basically what happens then is, as we put in fluid that we'll discuss here later, if I give a hypertonic solution that has a lot of solutes in it, well, my body is going to then draw water from other compartments in the body into that vascular space to dilute the high amount of solutes that I'm putting in from that fluid. So that's basically what affects the shifting of fluids back and forth. You have your oncotic pressure, and then you have the tonicity or the the amount of solutes that we put in different chambers that allow the shifting to occur. This is all based on the concept that we're not going to have completely free flowing of fluid back and forth out of the vascular space into the interstitial space. Obviously, this does happen, but in your capillary lining, you're going to have what's called the glycocalyx. And basically, this is a very small lining in the capillaries that prevent fluid from leaking out. Otherwise, when your blood vessels split into these tiny capillaries, we'd have all this fluid just leaking and edema forming, and we wouldn't have anything coming back on the venous side and returning to the the heart to get oxygen again at the lungs. And as a result, you see this happen with sepsis patients. Sepsis patients have a breakdown in this glycocalyx, and that's why you often see a lot of third spacing. And then you have this hypovolemic picture and septic shock picture because the capillary lining isn't able to hold that volume in the vascular space and fluid is able to leak out. So just keep that in mind that with the assumption that this glycocalyx is functioning appropriately, the onconic pressure and then the tonicity of your different compartments is what's going to control the amount of fluid shifting back and forth. So knowing that, what determines the amount of tonicity in the vascular space? So we use the word osmolarity to define this. So when we talk about plasma, plasma osmolarity, how we calculate this is we take two times your sodium. That's the easiest way to quickly figure this out. So let's say your sodium level is 145. You can quickly double that to be 290, and you can assume that you're going to be slightly higher than that for your overall plasma osmolarity. And that's because the actual formula, we take two times your sodium, and then we add to that your glucose divided by 18 and your BUN divided by 2.8. 
So those aren't going to add a lot to that number. That's why it's really easy to quick take the sodium times two and then just know you're going to be slightly above that. But you kind of want that 280, 290 picture here. When you start getting above 300, you're in the hyper osmolarity state. And when you're dropping closer to that 250 range, you're starting to get more into that hypotechnicity state. Perfect. So Cole already kind of mentioned this, but let's talk about the specific types of fluids that you can give. And there's going to be three main classifications. So there's hypotonic, isotonic, or hypertonic. So if you give a hypotonic solution, it will have less solutes. So the fluid that you give will leave the plasma volume and go into the intracellular volume and try to balance out because comparatively, there's more solutes in the intracellular fluid than there is in this fluid that you're giving uh, in the extracellular, in the plasma. If you give inappropriate hypotonic solutions, you can cause fluid to go into cells and cause the cells to basically explode. You can have this go across the blood-brain barrier and cause brain swelling. The next one, isotonic solution, this is probably what we're most familiar with when you just want to give somebody some fluid and bulk up their volume. Normal saline is probably the most frequently used isotonic solution. The solutes in this solution will be the same as your plasma and interstitial volume. So you're not really going to see fluid shifts and this will increase your plasma and interstitial volume. If you want to give a hypertonic, so this is the the last main category, this is going to have more solutes in it than your plasma. So what does this look like? If you give a hypertonic solution intervascularly, then you're going to be pulling water out of the intracellular components into your plasma. You'll hear people say, well, this person is just intervascularly dry and you're wanting to pull fluid into the vascular system. Hypertonic can do that. And some examples of these different ones, hypotonic, Think half saline, D5W, ISO, think normal saline like we discussed. It's probably the most frequently used one. Lactated ringers is going to be isotonic. And then plasma light also is going to be isotonic. Plasma light is probably going to resemble the plasma the closest. But again, I feel like normal saline is probably what you'll see most often. Normal saline, by the way, has 154 milliequivalents of sodium and chloride. So if you give too much of this, you can actually see an increase in your chloride levels. The kidneys are going to balance chloride with bicarb. So as your chloride keeps rising, if you're giving a bunch of this, the kidneys are going to keep getting rid of the bicarb, which can cause a metabolic acidosis with a hyperchloremic state. The lactate for LR is actually converted to bicarb in the body. So you can actually get a metabolic alkalosis. In my head, whenever I hear lactated ringers, I think it would be an acidosis. But again, remember that that lactate is converted to bicarb. And so you'll have a metabolic alkalosis potentially with the LR. You don't want to give LR when you're giving blood because remember LR has calcium in it. And so that will react with the citrate in the blood. Lastly, examples of hypertonic For this one, for me, I just think of if it has two things in the name, if you can't quite remember the specifics of which one's hypo, hyper, those different things. Hyper to me, if there's two different types of fluids, so D5, normal saline, D5, half saline, D5, LR, anything that there's two, then that's going to be your hypertonic solutions. And then obviously 3% uh, normal saline is going to be hypertonic. Hypotonic, just remember D5W. And then your half normal saline. Yeah, and the reason D5W is hypo, you would think 
by throwing a bunch of D5 in the solution and become hypertonic. But it's basically because the dextrose just gets broken down for aerobic respiration, and then you're left with just the W, which is water, and it's just a hypotonic solution than if it's just water. So that's why D5W is the only dextrose solution that's hypotonic. But otherwise, if you see dextrose in anything, your best bet is to say hypertonic. Last thing I want to talk about here when we're talking about different types of fluids. So far, what we've been talking about are crystalloids. So all of these different fluids, hypotonic, isotonic, hypertonic, everything that we've discussed, all those examples, those are all examples of crystalloid solutions. You can also give colloid solutions. The main difference here is that crystalloids, you will replace blood loss at three to one, where colloids, you'll replace one to one. Colloids will increase vascular volume for longer periods of time. Colloids, an example of this would be albumin or dextran. The one I'm most familiar with working in the ICU would be albumin. And basically, it works a couple of different ways. But one of the main things it does is it increases the oncotic pull back into the space. So like Cole was talking, you have several different factors that are going to determine your fluid shifts. And one of them is your oncotic pull. Well, albumin, because it's a protein, is going to want to pull the fluid back into the vascular space. And so you would often see somebody would get, you know, like a liter of fluid or something, and it might affect their blood pressure a little bit. But then you give some albumin, and one, it would affect their blood pressure more with a lesser volume. And two, it would last a lot longer because those proteins are going to stay in the intervascular space because of that glycocalyx. When you give these different colloids, one thing you need to remember is that albumin binds to calcium. And so you'll have lower free plasma calcium levels. So it'll look like hypocalcemia. So you'll want to look for your Trousseau and Chebec signs and just monitor their calcium when you're giving albumin because it's not like they've lost their calcium, but it's bound to that albumin. And so you're going to see less circulating calcium levels. Great. So next we want to move into transfusions specifically with blood products and the different types of blood products that we can give. So to start, let's just do a, a review here on blood type. So you have your A, B, AB, and O types along with your RH, either positive or negative. Basically what this means, if a patient, let's say, is a positive. Well, the positive or negative at the end is relating to the RH factor. And when we say any of these, we're saying that they have an antigen on their red blood cells for this thing. So if I'm saying the patient is A positive, that means they have antigens for A and RH on their red blood cells, which means they have antibodies for the other ones. So they would have antibodies to B. If they are O negative, that basically means that they have no antigens on their red blood cells of these main antigens that we're talking about, which means that they have antibodies for all the rest of them. So as a result, O negative is a universal donor because they have no antigens on their red blood cells. When I give their blood to someone else, there's going to be no main antigens on that red blood cell for the recipient's body to have antibodies to react to it. But let's say I have a patient that is B positive. If I have a patient that is B positive, that means they have an antigen for B and RH on their red blood cell, but they have antibodies against A. So I cannot give this patient any donor blood that has A antigens on it because they're going to have antibodies to that A 
which will react negatively when I give that blood to that patient. So hopefully here you can get that picture that O negative is going to be the universal donor because it has no antigens on it, whereas AB positive is going to be the universal recipient because since they have AB and the RH, they have all those antigens, so their body does not have any antibodies to fight against it from any other blood that would come in contact with that patient's blood. This kind of tricked me up at first. If you see plasma cell donation, this is actually the exact opposite. Plasma cell donation, O negative is the universal recipient and AB positive is the universal donor. So if you ever get a question about that, read carefully because it's a simple concept that I feel like we've all had several times and they might just say, what is the universal donor for plasma cell donation? And you immediately would think universal donor is O negative. Well, it said plasma, so that's the opposite it's AB positive would be the universal donor. So don't get tripped up on that. Perfect. So like we talked about the different types of fluids, now let's talk about the different types of blood products that we can give. So the most common that you'll probably see is just giving red blood cells. And this will just replace the red blood cells in an anemic patient. If you give one unit, it'll raise your hemoglobin by about one or overall about 3%. So usually you in the ICU, you'd see replacing hemoglobin maybe around seven or eight, depending on your unit's policy. If you give one unit, if it's seven, you replace, ideally you should see it go up to around eight. When we're talking about surgical procedures, it's important that you estimate your blood loss during surgery to determine when you need to give the red blood cells. In order to determine the blood loss needed to reach a certain hemoglobin, just take your initial hemoglobin minus the hemoglobin that you'll want to start replacing at, and then divide that by your initial hemoglobin. So if their hemoglobin's, just for easy math, 10, and you want to start replacing if they hit 8, then you'll just subtract 10 minus the 8 and then you'll divide it by the initial hemoglobin, so you divide it then by 10. You multiply that number by the patient's estimated blood volume, which again is 70 mils per kilogram in an adult. As far as storing your red blood cells, it's stored with citrate. We talked about this previously in this discussion about not wanting to give blood cells with lactated ringers because of this citrate. Citrate will inhibit calcium. So if you are giving lots and lots of red blood cells, you'll want to check a calcium because that citrate will start to inhibit the calcium that is in the patient's body. And then you can have a hypocalcemic picture. Again, you don't want to give this with lactated ringers because that calcium and the citrate will react together. Red blood cells need to stay alive. So when they're being stored, they'll be stored with dextrose and other components needed to make ATP. Think about this as they're sitting on the shelf for long periods of time. The longer that they are there, the more their membranes will start to break down, which will allow more potassium to leak out of the cells. And so you can have a risk for hyperkalemia when giving these blood products to your patient. Also, it has decreased 2,3-DPG. If you remember, 2,3-DPG will affect our oxyhemoglobin curve. So this will shift it to the left. Keep that in mind if you're giving red blood cells that your oxyhemoglobin curve, again, might shift to the left due to the decreased 2,3-DPG. Another one that we can give is fresh frozen plasma or FFP. This will have coagulation factors along with fibrinogen and proteins. 
you give this to patients when you basically need to thicken their blood and cause more coagulation, or you can give this if you need to reverse warfarin. Cryo is another one that you can give. It has specific components of FFP. So think of FFP as kind of like the parent has all of these different coagulation factors. Cryo is going to have just specific items from the FFP. So it has fibrinogen factor 8 and 13 along with your von Willebrand factor. You mainly give these to patients if they're low specifically in fibrinogen or have von Willebrand disease or hemophilia. The next thing we want to talk about is platelets. Platelets is another main blood product that we would give in the operating room. Obviously, we mainly give this to replace platelet counts if they're low. So you want to look at your platelet count prior to surgery. And depending on the type of surgery we're doing with how much vascular involvement there's going to be, how much risk of bleeding there's going to be, we're going to replace platelets either to make sure they're above 50,000 or even 100,000 if we're more at risk procedure. You can also give whole blood. We don't really give this as much, but basically whole blood contains all the products that we talked about so far. It literally is just whole blood and you can use it to replace blood evenly and just increase the blood volume. But like I said, we don't really use it very often. We more go into these specific types of blood products that we can give, such as red blood cells, FFP, cryo, platelets, etc. So there's different things that we can do when we order blood. There's a type, a screen, a cross match. I really never understood the differences between all of these. But basically, a type is a very simple test which takes the recipient's blood and combines it with the main antibodies like A and B to determine what type the recipient's blood is. So when we do a type, it's just a five-minute thing. It just quickly tells you what kind of blood they are by combining it with main antibodies and see if there's reactions or not. A screen takes a little bit longer, takes almost an hour, and basically we take a sample of blood from the recipient and we mix it in a pre-prepared solution of red blood cells that contain specific antigens and we test for the different antigens and antibodies that would be seen in that blood compatibility. When you go into a cross match, a cross match then is when we're actually simulating what would happen when we take the recipient's blood sample that we already took and take a sample of the donor's blood and mix them together. So we do a little trial run here. This again takes almost an hour and basically we want to see that no reaction is going to occur. So again, we take a sample of the recipient's blood and we, once we pick out the donor blood that we're going to give, we take a sample of that, put them together in a test tube, make sure nothing happens. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into the different types of transfusion reactions that can have happen. But obviously, if you do see change in vital signs, you're, you're thinking that the patient may be having a reaction. Obviously, the first thing to do is stop it, give fluid to dilute it and go through that whole cascade, but we're not going to go into that for the sake of time. We do want to end with two more common things that can be seen with transfusions, and that's either trolley or taco. So trolley stands for transfusion-related acute lung injury. This is basically what they think causes this is leukocyte antigens from the donor red blood cells that come into contact with the capillary membranes in the lungs of the recipient, and they damage those capillary membranes. Well, as a result, then fluid's able to leak out through those capillaries and they leak across from the plasma into the actual pulmonary space and they cause pulmonary edema to occur. So the important thing here is this is not a cardiogenic related pulmonary edema. So it's not from a backup of fluid. It's simply because we're breaking down the lining there at the lungs. So that's where it's contrasted to a taco, which is a transfusion associated circulatory overload. So this one's more of that cardiogenic picture where now we have given so much 
extra fluid from these transfusions that we have overloaded the heart and the heart can't keep up and it starts to back up and we have the pulmonary edema that forms due to a backup from the heart. So that's the difference here is that is simply from a fluid overload and a backup from your pump, whereas the trolley was an actual injury to that lining at the lungs itself that can then cause that injury to occur. In terms of giving blood products as a ratio, each facility is going to have a specified blood product transfusion ratio. And while each ratio might differ slightly, the usual packed red blood cell to fresh frozen plasma ratio should be somewhere between the three to one and one to one range. So anywhere from one to three packed red blood cells to one FFP. Now, one of those 250 cc units of FFP is going to raise the fibrinogen level about 10 to 15 milligrams per deciliter. And on a side note with the FFP, it can also be given to treat angioedema. So hereditary angioedema exacerbations can result when there is a deficiency in the C1 esterase inhibitors. So this is C1INH, as well as when there is an overproduction of of bradykinin as well. And so FFP is recommended as part of the treatment for these exacerbations due to it containing the C1INH. So you'll often see that FFP can also be used and given for angioedema as well. So hopefully this has been a good review in terms of the different kinds of crystalloids and colloids that we can give to these different patients, when we would give them, what situations would warrant one over the other, and just review our understanding on different transfusions that we can do and what kind of reactions can occur from those.